This episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com. If you're new to heart rate variability or you just want to take your use of it to the next level, there are now online courses designed to help you do exactly that. Hundreds of people from NFL coaches to doctors to athletes and health seekers are already taking advantage of the in-depth course material. It's all online, go at your own pace, and the material focuses about half on the science and mechanisms and half on the data and real-world application of HRV. The courses are also platform-independent, meaning the content applies to you no matter which HRV app or hardware you use. Continuing education credits are available as well. And last, make sure to get your 10% discount for being a listener of this podcast by using coupon code ELITEPODCAST at checkout. To take your use of HRV to the next level, head on over to hrvcourse.com. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason, and today we've got Ed Harold joining us. And Ed, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Jason, and your audience. Awesome. Hey, uh, you know, we were kind of chatting a little before hitting record, and uh, we connected uh, via Twitter and some other ways and just kind of immediately recognized there might be some synergy here. And so I really appreciate you coming onto the show, and we're going to be talking a lot about breath today. And um, this is something, this is a topic that you seem to have devoted a lot of time to and a lot of research and and there's a personal journey behind it too. Um, I'll just give folks a quick background about you. Uh, Ed is an author, motivational speaker, inspirational leader, coach, and educator. And basically he has mastered the science of breath and that has guided him to apply mindful, conscious breathing practices in the fitness athletic and athletic training industry, wellness, organizational performance, and corporate settings, professional trainings and retreats, along with lifestyle coaching and, and things like that for individuals. And Ed, you kind of like to look at the field of neuroscience and then also at other areas of contemplative traditions to kind of blend this really interesting mix around breath. And so hopefully I said that. Um, I did breathe a little bit in the middle of there. Um, so hopefully that came across smoothly, but Ed, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really exciting uh, to be with you today and, and, and share some concepts and strategies with folks that they might not be fully aware of today. Yeah, no, and you know, breath is an interesting one because obviously everyone listening to this right now is breathing, hopefully. And uh, we've talked about it a little bit in other episodes of the show here and there, as well as mindfulness here and there. But I think if we really dig into this, you know, what got you so interested in breath and what kind of drove you down the route to dig into it as a, a powerful tool? Well, about 20 years ago, I was uh, a broken down uh, professional athlete. Uh, my body was riddled with wear and tear injuries. Uh, I, I, my body was extremely tight. I couldn't stretch. Uh, psychologically, I was in bouts of uh, depression and unworthiness, and I wasn't uh, bringing value to my family. And it was just, uh, you know, taking punches in the corner consistently. And I really felt like I was lost in my life. And I began to notice that inside my breathing, there were master keys that helped me reprogram my brain, keep my heart rate under control, keep my blood pressure steady, and constantly burn fat all day long rather than my precious glucose and sugar supplies. So when I began to add breath control into my self-care and exercise training routines, there was something I began to notice instantaneously is number one, in the same second, I could receive a cardiovascular spike, a stretch, 
strengthening mentally and physically, and there was a meditative, reflective mind. And to me, I'm all about time efficiency and quality before quantity. So time to me was extremely important. And when I could get all four forms of self-care for the human machine, in other words, you're getting a slight cardiovascular spike, you're building flexibility through your fascia and flexibility through your mental perceptions and perspectives. You're building strength in the spine and optimal posture. And you're also having an open channel in that heart-brain-mind connection. Everything inside of me began to change in regard to my self-worth. And I was able to see through my self-imposed fears and I could begin to see strengths that were hidden inside that. So inside painful routines, I began to find pleasure. And I was able to psychologically and emotionally get out of my own way a lot easier, while at the same time cutting down wear and tear in the body during the day, which allowed me psychologically to receive a much better night's sleep. Okay. And so, yeah, this is really fascinating, diving immediately into the impact of breath uh, and, and different breathing patterns or just accessing breath in a different way, leading to a change in mindset and perception. And we've talked about, we talk about stress a lot on this show because stress and heart rate variability go hand in hand so well. And as people are probably familiar, heart rate variability is used a lot in uh, biofeedback space and often in conjunction with breathing, mindfulness, and meditation. And But what I think a lot of people uh, overlook is the perception piece, right? So stress, uh, a lot of people either think of stress as a challenge or a, uh, a big weight on their back, right? And mm-hmm. that's two different perceptions. And one is more positive, the other is negative. And it actually has shown physiologically to manifest differently in how you respond to stress based on your perception of it. So it's really interesting that you kind of dive straight into that uh, from the beginning of your Genesis story, so to speak. Um, so, so when we're talking about breathing, and, and I imagine this is the cornerstone of, of kind of your evolution there, um, what was it about breath that really changed for you? Well, I began to notice that I was getting more physiology and psychological gains with substantially less wear and tear. I was really taking care of my heart rate. When most folks look at the cardiovascular system, it includes the respiratory system. If we begin to break those into two branches, we can predominantly see a couple things that can really help the heart rate stay down in moments of psychological or physiological exercise-induced stress. So if we look at the inhales predominantly a sympathetic action, in other words, there's going to be a slight spike in the autonomic system during the process of inhale. There is a slight excitement. There is uh, some vitality there. And then we look at the space between inhale and exhale, which is basically this blank space in the mind where there is nothing there, where we have the ability to stop the film in our head if we need to, or we can attach ourselves to what is in the film if it is something that is intention-driven or it's something that we're striving for. We have this wonderful exhale, and obviously the exhale is a big, big factor in regard to cooling the system down or bringing in some parasympathetic response. Most folks who I work with are having problems lengthening their exhale. So when we think about the exhale, the exhale is where we can begin to reset the inhale. We can begin to relax into mental or emotional stress. You know, the exhale, the process of exhale in the lungs gives us two amazing things. Number one, The exhale is filled with carbon dioxide, but inside the carbon dioxide, there's also one oxygen molecule. So if the brain can sit back and see that inside the waste product of carbon dioxide is actually one oxygen molecule, and it can extract that, 
and add it to the two oxygen molecules that you have on the next inhale, you'll have a third more vitality to control your, your physiology and psychology. Also, the exhale is our predominant fat burner. Yes, inflammation reduction and fat burning, 80% of this approximately in the average person takes place during the length of the exhale. The other 15 to 20% takes place through excretion, urination, sweat, things like that. So when we're looking about removing toxins, mucus, phlegm, and fat from our gastrointestinal organs, looking to raise alkalinity in our blood and reduce acidity and lower heart rate levels to where we're comfortable, the exhale plays a major, major role in detoxifying ourselves in that moment on every level and then improving the vitality on the next inhale. There's also a gap between the end of the exhale and the initiation of a new inhale. And when you can drop your mind consciously into that blank space, there's amazing creativity. There's amazing intuition there. There's amazing ways to think outside of the box that you can add to the next inhale and kind of expand your psychological bandwidth, your emotional bandwidth horizontally because we know that in some degree how we feel controls how we think. So getting control of the breath is a wonderful way to get control of our minds. And is this something that, so for folks listening that may be kind of newer to using breath as a tool for different manipulation, so to speak, of physiology and, and kind of mind-body, it seems like that's um, a really complicated task, basically, to get to the point where you're having specific thoughts between breaths, which, let's be honest, if even if you're holding your breath, only gives you about 20 seconds to come to your conclusion, um, unless you're holding it for a long time, uh, you know, how do you kind of work towards what you're describing? Well, it's a, it, it first starts out as anything. It, it's a mental skill that is acquired uh, over a period of time. The great part about it is, is that as soon as you slow down your nostril inhale, the film you're watching in your head begins to slow down. In other words, the faster you breathe, the faster the thoughts will go. The slower you breathe, the more the brain has the opportunity to frame the moment in a way that you have control over your mind. So slowing the breath down, two amazing things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to amplify the phrenic nerve, which is the motor nerve of the diaphragm. And you'll raise the tone of the phrenic nerve, which is going to allow the nerve fibers of the diaphragm to strengthen. And when the diaphragm is strong on the inhale, the first thing we're going to have is wonderful posture. The spine will be as erect as possible. And the mind loves to see an erect spine. The, the mind and the brain, when they see ourselves rounded or our posture is slightly off, we're using a lot more energy than we need to to make a choice. And it's really important what we're choosing because our choices have consequences. So strengthening the diaphragm is going to give you wonderful posture. And number two, it's a wonderful massage on your gastrointestinal organs. And it's a wonderful massage on your entric nervous system, which plays such a huge role in autonomic balance. Right. Wow. That's, yeah. So it starts with just slowing the breath down and and being conscious of it as well so there's a mindfulness aspect that's kind of built in there is that a lot of times our brains are kind of racing off to the next thing that we have to do and consciously slowing down breath kind of brings presence and maybe relieves some tension that we might have been holding by worrying about what we need to do next um so yeah. Is that kind of your experience as well? Does that play a role in this whole process? I think the idea here is to stay present. And most of the time, I think science says about 55 seconds out of every minute, we're not present. We're actually either in a past replaying an old event or we're on the road somewhere in the future on things that might happen. Now, these are all wonderful stories, and the mind is an epic entertainer, 
but you really have no control over what has happened or what might happen, but you do have complete control in the present moment in how you're responding. And how we're responding, in other words, stress to some degree from the negative standpoint might be simply an alarm system that the way you're rotating through the feedback loops of your brain might not be the most optimal way for us to interact with this moment. So when we're looking to change subconscious programming, there first must be a new conscious awareness of our perception of what has happened, what might happen in the present moment, always balancing risk and reward. Yeah, I really like that. Like, I would like to emphasize that is that um, you said that when you're perceiving negative stress, it might just be an alarm system that is basically telling you that your perception or your reaction to the current um, environment or whatever you're experiencing is maybe the wrong reaction or the wrong perception. And of course, we're not saying right and wrong from like a moral or ethical or philosophical point of view. It's more about uh, a learning process of how you can handle things better in the future, potentially, right? Without a doubt. It really seems like we have a tendency in this information overload age that we live in to overcomplicate things that might be simple. And when the heart rate is up and when the breath is disturbed, to some degree, there's centers of the brain, the amygdala and other areas, the hypothalamus, that are sensing that the environment that we're in isn't safe. And in that, in these moments of not having mental safety, even though these are just thoughts, the body's responding as if we're actually in physical danger of being chased by a bear. So it's really important that we can authenticate our strengths, authenticate to the best of our ability, our liabilities, and try to find the space in between there, unbelievable balance, allowing the heart to have slightly a conversation with the brain that we're okay down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and interestingly, when you're looking at measuring heart rate variability and you're at rest, so you're not exercising or doing something that's supposed to be stressful, like exerting yourself physically, then um, there's what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia that kind of expresses itself. You can see it in real time, um, expresses itself as kind of, uh, what do you call it? It's kind of like giving it personality, a way to say it. But um, anyways, if the body is under stress, either postural, structural, digestive, um, you're not accessing your diaphragm or you have some type of mental, psychological, emotional stress that's pretty strong, then it's really difficult to see your respiratory sinus arrhythmia if you're measuring HRV and just sitting, breathing naturally. And so um, it's it's kind of a little bit of a red flag that we look for when working with people to say, hey, look, you're not doing anything that's supposed to be stressful right now, but we can't see your breath in your heart rate or your heart rate variability. You know, why is that? Is it physical or, you know, psychological? We kind of can dig into different aspects of that. But um, then, you know, nine times out of 10, you can then give a cue to have that person kind of slow down and focus on their breath a little bit access that diaphragm, draw out those breaths, especially that exhale, as you mentioned, and then all of a sudden you can see that in their heart rate variability in real time. And I think it's a powerful cue for people to realize, oh, okay, yeah, I I see the difference now what you're talking about, and I'm not sure why I wasn't doing that before because there wasn't anything stressful really going on. It was either all in your head or there was some accumulation of kind of physical stress, like an injury or, or a chronic posture issue or something like that. These are, one, these are wonderful awarenesses because, you know, life is an awareness-based model. I mean, you can have a, a, a lot of education and you can have a lot of wear for all physically, but at the end of the day, either you're aware of it or you're not. And we want to set in motion these creative modes that allow us to get out of our way when we need to. You know, and when you're inhaling through your nose, 
really slowly, the brain secretes nitric oxide. And this is a natural dilator, an anti-inflammatory molecule for the lungs, which clear the alveoli sacs. So you'll have more vitality. You'll have more energy. And who doesn't want to have more energy? I want you to have more energy, but I want it to be calm. And how do we get that energy calm? Well, the vagus nerve plays such a huge role from the core of the gut and the pelvis all the way up through the throat and through the centers of the brain in regard to our level of awareness. And when we can keep the heart rate under control or in moments of stress and just simply be reflective with it rather than react to it the same way we did last time, then we're well on our way of a neuroplastic type of an event. And then that new awareness drops down into the body and we begin to see uh, maybe the best in ourselves where in the past we might have seen something less than the best that wasn't true. And in in what in your opinion, is there kind of um, a point in which you some of this becomes a little bit more automatic? So, for example, it's it's going to be impossible in modern society to be able to be aware of your breath and what's going on with all of that twenty four seven or or even just the you know twelve to eighteen or whatever how many hours you're awake. Um, and, you know, yeah, just kind of unpack that a little bit with me is, is it always have to be conscious or can we reap benefits uh, unconsciously or, you know, what does that look like? Well, one of the great things about controlling the breath, whether you're breathing slow through the nostrils, whether you're breathing fast through the nostrils, whether you're incorporating some sort of mouth breathing strategy you know, one of the great things about all of this is that after you've come out of a, uh, a, a breath control routine, you're resetting every system in the mind-body connection to take less breaths per minute after the event of breath control, whether it's an exercise, whether it's in a, a yoga class, whether you're in your car and you're controlling your breath before you get to work. So when you're taking less breaths per minute, there's less acidity and wear and tear and stress on the heart and the gastrointestinal system and the bloodstream. So in that less breaths per minute, your heart rate is going to be more balanced during the day. And when the heart rate is balanced, obviously the psychological activity is going to have greater balance. And when we don't overheat the system during the day because we're taking less breaths per minute, it's much easier for the brain to begin to shut down when the sun goes down and move from the beta waves into the alpha waves into those beautiful theta waves. And then you can get a wonderful night's sleep because you've created an environment where in the doing part of the day, you're actually connecting deeper with the human being who's fine all the time. Okay. So then in your experience, how much time do people typically need to spend doing this? Like, let's break this down into a specific example. I really like that you brought up sleep because um, I was actually, I was just interviewed on another podcast yesterday and somebody, and they asked what, you know, is one thing that most people can improve. And uh, the two things that I gave, of course, to, to the question of what's one thing is uh, breath and sleep. And so it's just kind of interesting timing um, breath kind of gives you a very acute or, or manipulating your breath gives you a very acute change right in that moment. Um, and then in my experience with practice and then with integrating it into uh, uh, subconsciously into other activities, you start to get a lot of residual benefit as well. But then sleep is something that almost everyone could improve and almost everyone probably knows that also. They're like, I wish I could sleep more. But it's not just about sleeping more. It's improving the quality of that sleep. And there's a term now called sleep hygiene, which is kind of like setting up your environment for optimal sleep. And uh, coming back to the original question on that is how does this practice integrate with sleep? And do people need to do um, a practice every night before bed? If so, how long? Maybe we can just talk about that a, a bit. Well, let's kind of back it up to what's happening in the morning. So as soon as I open my eyes in the morning, the first thing I do is I psychologically get excited with gratitude. 
I, I just have this opportunity to go out there and be the best I possibly can be and bring value to myself and everyone who I'm going to come in contact with on the planet during my waking hours. And I, and I begin to slow my breath down almost immediately in the morning so I get psychologically and physiologically as grounded as possible before I begin my uh, morning uh, routine. As When I work with clients and companies, when, when people can't sleep at night, what I try to do is the body is simply responding to the environment that was created from the last 12 to 16 hours. So the body, at that point, it's really almost too late to, uh, to go in and try to say, okay, I'm ready to go to sleep now. Uh, if we've had too many heartbeats, we've had too many thoughts, if, if there's been high blood pressure all day long, the body is going to be exhausted. And the brain requires vitality from the body for it to feel safe enough in the sleep protocol for it to unwind completely because it senses danger even though actually we're not in danger. So getting through the day with the least amount of heartbeats as possible, getting through the day with the least amount of breaths as possible, it's like when you get up in the morning and you start your day, you, you have got like a cord of wood. And the idea is to use the least amount of that wood as possible for your psychological and physiological goals, not burning all the wood all the day. So if you can slow things down during the day and not overheat your system and become aware of where you psychologically and emotionally stub your toe, and you can slow your breath down and begin to break those obstacles down into smaller bite-sized pieces, your heart and your brain will figure this stuff out. So if we can stay cool during the day in a parasympathetic, fat-burning, endurance mode, and then from time to time during the day, we'll go into psychological or physiological sprints or we'll bring the heart rate up so we're really taking care of the heart the whole time and then when it's time to go to bed there's enough energy in the body that the brain is going to feel safe enough to shut down the more serotonin that we have on reserve uh, coming into sleep which is kind of like a prerequisite for melatonin the easier it's going to be for us to have strong melatonin secretions between 10 p.m and 2 and 2 a.m and then when the melatonin secretion stop, you have serotonin on supply so that you can fall back asleep. Now, if you can't fall back asleep we, when you wake up at 2 o'clock, we know that the left nostril on the inhale is parasympathetic and the right nostril on the exhale is parasympathetic. So if you simply notice I've awakened at night, and not have a stressful response that the sky is falling and poor me and all this victimhood. If you can just say, okay, I've awakened for a reason. I'd like to get back to sleep right now. And you can control the breathing with your fingers and you can inhale up the left nostril slowly and exhale down the right nostril slowly. What you'll do is you'll shut off the adrenaline uh, receptors in the right nostril that feed the left cortex and the left nostril on the exhale on, on the uh, opposite side. And you'll shut off the adrenaline and cortisol and you'll begin to secrete neurochemistry that'll get you back to sleep in less than 10 breaths. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, that I actually have found um, that if I do wake up at night, um, that basically being at peace with the fact that that happens is um, half the battle to getting back to sleep and not worrying about the fact that you know, your sleep got disrupted or something like that. Um, but that's really neat to have another tool in the toolkit, which I'm going to try now if I do. Fortunately, I've figured out sleep fairly well, but uh, it's never, it's not always perfect, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited to give that a try. So inhale through the left nostril and exhale through the right nostril. And do it as slowly as possible, Jason, because you don't want to agitate the mind. You know, when things are done slowly, there's a sense of calm that's taking place between the heart and the brain. And, you know, if we've awakened in the middle of the night and the first thing we want to do is, is start a war, uh, that is going to st stimulate all sorts of uh, neurochemistry and physiological reactions that are going to stimulate being awake. 
Another way of, of falling back asleep is simply riding that exhale down and then pausing for a two count before you inhale again. So if you look at the exhale as a parasympathetic action, uh, hormonally and from a neurochemistry standpoint, and then you pause at the end without straining the next inhale, you don't want to rush it or have it come in really fast and agitate the mind. If you have a slow motion exhale with just the two count holding out, you will amplify the parasympathetic qualities from a neurological and a physiological standpoint. Much like the opposite way, when you get up in the morning, if you have a slow motion inhale and you hold the breath in for a two count, you're going to stimulate sympathetic activity and spike the mind in the higher levels of creativity and concentration and focus. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of some of those activities, um, do you have experience or do you recommend any specific types of uh, breathing patterns or anything when you are trying to perform different tasks? I mean, we can kind of break that into more mentally demanding tasks and then more physically demanding tasks like exercise. Yeah. So in exercise, the first thing we want to do is we want to stop mouth breathing. The body is designed, we're all born as nostril breathers. Uh, every animal on earth is breathing through its nose its entire life and it only breathes through its mouth when it's hunting or when it's being hunted to remove itself from danger. Now we can take animals and we can move them out of their natural environments and they'll pant, but predominantly this is a general rule of thumb. The DNA is designed to nostril breathe. It creates structure physiologically and psychologically. So when you think about the breathing, the first thing we want to do athletically is we want to lengthen that exhale in the process of warm up. And this will drop you down into the gut quickly and you'll begin to get heat from your gastrointestinal organs. The digestive enzymes and heat that comes from these organs is a lot hotter than lactic acid. And when we can clear the internal walls of the organs of mucus, phlegm, fat, inflammation, acidity, and get heat from these organs, we don't need to use the neuromuscular skeletal system as much to receive the wonderful benefits of exercise. So when you begin the exercise process, lengthen that exhale and notice if you don't start to sweat 90 seconds or two minutes into it and you're not really activating substantial amount of neuromuscular skeletal activity so there's not a lot of wear and tear in your joints. You're not just incinerating muscle mass because you because your ego wants to. You're dropping down into the core of your emotions, the core of who you are. And when you're getting this longer exhale in the process of workout in the beginning, when you're done, you start to feel amazing because it's almost like you're flooding the nervous system with parasympathetic activity so that when your heart rate does go up higher in your workout, it doesn't stay high as long. Right. So the recovery systems kind of kick in faster. And that actually kind of corresponds with um, just a little bit of what I've seen in other domains where people have trained to see how far, you know, they're kind of more competitive in the sense that exercise is part of their uh, goal reaching. And they have found benefit from trying to train at levels in which they can nostril breathe and it doesn't force them to, to mouth breathe or pant. And also then increasing their ability to nostril breathe to higher and higher levels of exertion and being able to sustain that. They've seen benefit in that um, translating to then kind of better aerobic efficiency and things like that. So um, it's kind of interesting to hear like, you know, both sides of that equation going into it. But so nostril breathing during exercise. And of course, there's going to be little bouts where you may do a sprint or something like that. And then you're just getting oxygen and through every way that you can breathing in through your ears if you could. But yeah. Um, and then the, the goal there, uh, is, from what I'm hearing, is to then try to return to the ability to nostril breathe as soon as possible and calm the system down. So here's a, here's a couple landmarks here. So when you begin your workout, the first thing you want to do is you want to double the length of the exhale. So if you're inhaling for, say, a five count, 
exhale for a 10 count. And if you think about the inhale and exhale, they kind of cosmically pull on each other from a physiological standpoint. So the longer you can exhale, the more you can deflate your lungs, the more you can push the diaphragm up towards the collarbone, the greater recoil you're going to have it to take in more energy on the next inhale. So the first few minutes, stay on the exhale. And then after that, inhale, hold the breath in and go through several minutes of that and then exhale as long as you can. And then inhale, hold the breath in, exhale, hold the breath out. And you'll go through maybe five to 10 minutes of this. And this just sets the table for cerebrally and physiologically an amazing workout with less wear and tear. Now, when you start to feel like you're going to make that transition to mouth breathe, when you've overloaded the system temporarily because the ego has brought you physiologically into a gap that you're not ready for yet, what you'll do there is you'll take two or three really quick breaths through your nose. And this will reset the carbon dioxide and oxygen levels. This will reset the autonomic and cardiovascular system. And then you'll be able to reestablish yourself back into that nostril breath. You know, when you're exhaling longer than your inhale, immediately right there, the brain will trigger the body to burn its fat stores. The brain will feel safe enough for the body to release what it stores down at its core level. When the brain sees the exhale being shorter than the inhale, it senses fear. It's very primitive. It's like a Neanderthal man. So it's, this is a master key. So as soon as you begin to exhale shorter than your inhale, you're triggering fight or flight responses. You're filling your body with acidity. Uh, there's all sorts of harmful things that are taking place there because you want to be able to exercise 60 years from now. It's not just something you want to do six days from now. So always monitoring yourself for what your fuel is physiologically from the body. And the breath will give you instant feedback of what your heart rate is, what your fuel is, fat or sugar, and then what is your level of creativity and focus and flow in the brain. Wow, yeah. And, and you know, it's for folks listening, it's definitely um, will be interesting the next time you exercise to be conscious of your breathing patterns. And I would say, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if this is kind of the first time that you're experimenting with this, maybe uh, do it with some lower intensity exercise and be very conscious not to accidentally pass out while holding weights over your head or something like that um, as you kind of get used you know, to this type of practice. This is the magic of it all, Jason. You just went right into it. In other words... If you want to go out and run a seven-minute mile, you're going to look at the old model, which is frequency, intensity, duration, and you're going to train the brain and body to do segments of a six-minute mile or a 6.15 mile to get yourself up to that seven-minute pace. So you're going to have to move your joints, move your muscles, move your bones, spike your heart rate up to get yourself to the place down the line where you can comfortably run a seven-minute mile. If you just do that four-part breath that I just showed you, you can run a nine-minute mile, and then you'll have substantially less wear and tear on all the systems structurally and physiologically and psychologically on the body, and the breath control, which will be less wear and tear on the neuromusculoskeletal system, but the benefit of that is, is you'll be able to easily run a seven-minute mile because, number one, you're reverse engineering exercise. What you're doing here is you're training the respiratory system first. You're controlling the breath. Number two, that's going to train your cardiovascular system second. And then number three, the wisdom of the heart rate is then going to control your neuromusculoskeletal system output. So rather than training the old model, which is the outside in, you move the neuromusculoskeletal system, the heart rate and acidity levels rise, and then the heart and the brain cause Cause call for the breathing to come into play to keep you in balance. Well, what if you controlled the breathing first and then the heart rate second and then the neuromusculoskeletal system third? It would be a substantially less energy expenditure. Number two, there would be substantially more quality in the mind because when you control the breath, you're actually interacting and controlling your mind. Your mind isn't controlling you based on who you were or who you might be. You're completely present. 
And in all these fashions, there's a substantially less acidic and wear and tear buildup on the joints, muscles, and bones of the body. Wow. Yeah, that's a different way to approach it for sure. It's, uh, I'll be really interested to hear what folks uh, experience if they go and implement this. Uh, I'm sure, Ed, you get feedback all the time from your audience and stuff, but this will be interesting to hear uh, as folks kind of experiment with this. And I also wanted to know, is this a similar process when you're talking about mental exertion, let's say, um, business, uh, problem solving, you know, overcoming psychological challenges and things like that. Without a doubt, it's all the same stuff, whether it's physical exercise or whether it's a big board meeting, the inside of your body, it's dark. It's responding to the environment that's being created around your heart rate. So when you're at a, when you're at a meeting and there's high level discussions taking place, number one, you want to be a great listener. So the person at the table who has the lowest heart rate has the ability to psychologically get into the deeper centers of the brain where the next great idea is coming from. The person with the highest heart rate is probably most likely when they are triggered to have an emotional response over top of an intellectual event. And when emotions overpower intellect at work, Generally, that's not something that we're looking for. At work, we're getting paid to think. We're not getting paid to emote. So the person who has control over their breath, number one, is going to be the calmest person in the room because they had the lowest heart rate. The brain sees that lower heart rate and identifies that with safety. And when the brain senses safety, the higher learning centers are going to activate and there'll be so many more choices in regard to the old consequences. So again, it segues very, very easy from an endurance or sprint athletic routine into an endurance and sprint mental routine in the corporate environment. It's the same stuff. Aha. See, I knew that my uh, abnormally low heart rate was an advantage. <laughs> um, you know, there's a reason why we have two ears and, and one mouth. And you know, when, when the heart rate gets up over 70%, I think there's some pretty good science out there that the brain will immediately revert back in the old subconscious programming on how to move forward. In other words, you're simply repeating something that has either been familiar or in a helpful way or unhelpful way in the past. You're not creating the next greatness, the next paradigm of your physical, mental, emotional skill sets. So when you can keep that heart rate down, whether it's an exercise or whether it's in the corporate boardroom, the brain is immediately neuroplastic and more mindful of what the actual opportunity is in this moment to grow. Yeah, and interesting. Yeah, it's you also hear just from uh, just some more kind of traditional methods that if you increase your aerobic fitness, uh, so basically become more aerobically fit, your body gets uh, more efficient oxygen utilization. Your your resting heart rate typically will go down. Um, as your body becomes more efficient at utilizing the, that energy source. And that translates, that plus just exercise and movement in general, translates to better brain function, better executive function, cognitive abilities. And, uh, you know, part of that may be, from what I'm hearing, uh, is that um, having that lower heart rate and that more parasympathetic kind of calmer system that feels like, there's an element of safety involved. There's also maybe some softer description there rather than just saying, hey, more fit people tend to have lower heart rates and uh, have more functional brains, so to speak, um, is that there, there's, some, there's a blend there. There's a lot of things going on and a lot of contributors to that. But across the board, it seems like having control of your breath, not panting shallow breathing during a meeting or having your heart rate escalate uh, during uh, some a psychologically engaging activity may help you perform more uh, critical thinking or perform better for critical thinking and less kind of reactive knee-jerk uh, responses to what you're experiencing. Does that sound correct? I think without a doubt, there's a there's a direct correlation between your cardiovascular strength and your psychological resiliency, without a doubt. And 
you know, you don't have to be in the Tour de France from a cardiovascular standpoint to, to be dynamic in the corporate environment. One of the things that I like to do with folks is I like them to become stronger psychologically in the afternoon where most of the missteps seem to take place. And if we can manage our energy through breath control in the morning and not waste energy as far as excessive thinking or over emoting, and we're managing ourselves, not taking extra steps and really you know, trying to get the most out of the least consistently telling the brain that's what I want to occur. And you're burning fat, you're setting that in motion all morning long with strong vagal tone. You're actually going to get stronger as the day unfolds on every level rather than weaker. So you need to have some cardiovascular strength. And if you don't want to go out and you know ride your bike for 20 or 25 miles, Simply controlling your breath, the length, depth, and the pace, that right there will give you a mild sympathetic cardiovascular response of spiking the heart rate up. And there's intervals of that that you can create around breath control that will build endurance. There's other breath control routines that you can do that stimulate speed work. There's other breath control routines that you can do that stimulate a steady state type of a workout. But you don't have to have the typical cardiovascular workout that work that we've been taught by our uh, by our forefathers and mothers. Interesting, yeah, and it also it comes to mind. I just we have a, a business advisor that uh, well several, but one specifically that we work with who um, has started measuring his heart rate and heart rate variability during meetings and during things like that. Um, and has found that some meetings really jack up his heart rate and it'll be like close to a hundred at the end of the meeting and he's just sitting on the phone. And um, normally it's much lower than that for him at a rested state. And he just started to try to figure out, well, what is it that's jacking up my heart rate? Obviously there's something very exciting going on in the meeting um, and that is okay, but Maybe there's things that he can do. And again, this is a conversation he and I have been having about controlling that a little bit more so that he is able to kind of keep it under control during the meeting. And then also the residual effect of that will be less. So when you have a really exciting meeting, well, you still have to perform for the rest of the day. Like you were saying, in the afternoon, you don't want to be burnt out because in the morning you've been having a lot of energy expenditure. So what can you do to kind of come back down or keep yourself uh, more regulated so that you don't burn yourself out throughout the day and then cumulatively throughout days, weeks, months, years, etc. Yeah, that's wonderful research. And, you know, I kind of like to turn stress upside down. You know, when you think about it, stress at its deeper level, uh, simply shows us that you care. I mean, you are showing up in the moment. You are trying to do the best you possibly can. You're interested here. And when you can look at that stress, that sensitivity to stress, obviously that you care. I mean, if you weren't stressed, you wouldn't care. I mean, there'd be nothing there. There'd be no arousal. There'd be no interest. There would be no focus. So when you can begin to break down the stress and the higher heart rate and find interest in regard to that better version of yourself interpersonally and then with others externally, I think that we can really defuse a lot of the negative psychological and physiological aspects of stress. Stress is a wonderful thing. It's trying to help us. And this constant pushing it away is actually causing long-term pain in my mind. Mm, Yeah, that's actually... As you were saying that, it came to my mind that um, phrasing it almost as just embracing stress and oftentimes the fact that we care and the fact that we're experiencing stress also has to do with other people that we're interacting with. We care what other people think or we care that we don't let other people down or something like that. And uh, oftentimes I find in those situations that instead of trying to hide from it or push it off or internalize it, that it actually can help to bring it to the surface and, you know, in a, in a tactful way, 
almost bring it up to the person who is the source of your stress. And just because they're the source of your stress doesn't mean that they're a negative person or anything like that. For example, um, I really like to uh, try to be as clean as possible so that it, I don't cause stress for my wife. Um, and, you know, it's uh, uh, it's not that she's a negative, uh, uh, you know, person to me. It's just that I like to make her happy, so to speak. And obviously, there's other reasons to be clean. That's just an example that kind of goes along with my little story here. And anyways, uh, the point is that um, interacting with that other person and, and letting them inside a little bit can be helpful. And that's hard to do in a lot of scenarios, but at least embrace it for yourself and realize that that's there and it's okay. And it's just that you care. And maybe, um, you know, it's not as bad as you're making it out to be, so to speak. That's a wonderful awareness, Jason. You know, when I'm really grounded and I get stressed, I get kind of excited because I know I'm going to learn something new. And when I can learn, you know, one new thing every day and keep the brain in that mode, you know, then it's okay for me to forget one old thing that has no bearing on who I am as a human being today. So you begin to turn this whole paradigm of this negative stress upside down on its head so that you don't feel like it's better than you or it's bigger than you or it's something that you can't overcome. You know, no one can control your mood without your permission. And everything that's being triggered through your sensory perception outside of you is simply a reflection of something maybe unhealed or totally integrated internally. So to get the heart and the brain to break these emotions, moods, behaviors, perception down, the heart's looking to the, the, heart's looking to the respiratory system through control. In other words, you can, if you can control your breath in, in the foreground of your mind, in the back of the house, what you're actually doing is, is you're controlling your neurochemistry. And you know we want to feel like we have some free will in regard to how we interact with the mind. And if you don't use your free will with control over time, as energy levels drop, you'll notice it turns into fear will. Mm. Free will versus fear will. I really like that. Yeah. It's, it's so true too. When you, it's in the moment, it's sometimes hard to overcome the, the natural kind of fearful or stressful, negative stressful response that we have. But there's a lot of power, I think, in looking back on a situation introspectively and seeing, okay, maybe I had an argument with somebody. Well, maybe I still think I'm right. That's fine. You can just acknowledge that, put that aside. The fact that you had an argument with somebody, and I'm not talking about like a cordial debate or a, or a debate is one different thing than an argument. An argument kind of insinuates that there was like a negative outcome, basically. Right. Um, if you had an argument with somebody, even if you think you were right, it doesn't matter. You were a participant in the negativity of that argument. And how could you have approached that situation differently? And it doesn't always mean that, um, you know, you could have said your side of the equation in a different way. It may have just been avoiding that situation altogether that was the better solution and then approaching it later when there wasn't so much emotional charge behind it for either you or the other person. You know, there's a million different scenarios that you could run through to figure out how you could handle something better. And the point is not to be perfect or to be, to never have arguments or anything like that. It's just to over time, learn more about yourself and learn how to communicate with others or learn how to interact with the world in such a way that doesn't increase your negative stress load over time, right? So the more, and then, and then that then leaves more energy that you can put towards more positive activities or getting your point across in a more convincing way. (laughs) Yeah. It's so hard to stay positive when we're exhausted. Uh, You know, we're all going through this huge transformation all of us individually and collectively you know there's information overload there's so much going on our sensory perception is wired picking up information like it never has in the past of of human culture 
So when you think about the dynamics of the upper gut and the activity there of the diaphragm, obviously vertically moving down on the inhale and then pushing back up on the exhale, that vertical up and down movement. Then you have all the tentacles of the vagus nerve, which keeps the internal walls of the organs free of excessive inflammation and fat because we know that emotional molecules are stored in fat. And when emotions overpower intellect, obviously there's going to be an aggressive or defensive stance there. And that might be needed in the moment for safety, but most of the time it isn't. And we can keep the solar plexus of the body clean and we can keep the organs inside clear. We can keep our emotions down in our gut. We can keep our head up in the clouds, creating new ideas. And the heart is there in the middle, just like this master communicator, which understands all the qualities of emotions. It remembers the depths of the brain and all the knowledge that's stored inside this amazing organ. And the heart is never scared. You know, after we go through these psychological events where something's happened that we would have preferred not to, and we feel a little shame or maybe a little guilt, and like I was better than that. You know, if we can train through breath control and mental awareness to go to the heart first, the heart isn't afraid. There's the anatomical heart, and then there's kind of like this spiritual grandmother or grandfather in the heart. And it's always neutral or positive. It alerts us when the ego might be hijacking your goodness and you have the ability to check yourself really quickly before maybe you communicate something out in the field that in the past you might have and you just sit on it and hold it inside you for a moment and let it shift. Mm. That kind of reminds me too of uh, just taking a moment to check in before you engage in an activity. So um, yeah. some activities require more of uh, that than others. But for example, if you're walking by the break room at work and there's a pile of donuts and you know, you don't want to go there, but they're, uh, they're drawing you in <laughs> is uh, yeah. just to take a moment to do five or 10 deep breaths and say during that time, you know, um, let yourself reset, let your physiology, uh, become aware of itself and, uh, just ask yourself if it's worth it, basically. And a lot of times what you'll find is, oh, maybe I'm just dehydrated and I need to drink some water. And then I don't really actually need the donuts. And uh, the same could be said for going into an argument. It's like, okay, I, I feel that the situation is escalating. If I take a few deep breaths and think about, is this the right time to address this issue or not? Um, maybe I can just wait and... It's not life or death for me to address this right now until there's a better moment later. Ah, oh, you're so you're so tuned into this thing because it seems so challenging to notice what we need to hang on to and what we need to let go of. And, you know, if we can just follow the simple movement of the diaphragm, you know, which is the inhale, the energy is moving down. It's going into your legs and your glutes, your hips, into your feet, and it's getting you grounded physiologically and psychologically. And on the exhale, the energy's gone back up into the brain, but in a calm way. And the diaphragm is working kind of like a plunger, down on the inhale, up on the exhale. What's it's doing? It, it's removing waste. And most of the waste is stored, you know, through fat cells. And we want to constantly let fat be the fuel. And notice, you know, here's these donuts. And there might be a craving for the donut. And is that psychological a need or is that physiological need? You know, and sometimes a bite of a donut might be exactly what the body needs in that moment, but it's probably not the whole donut. So just being mindful of, you know, what the actual need of the body is in that moment rather than the mind. Right. Yeah. And then asking questions again, that, you know, <laughs> keeping that uh, going even further is um, asking questions later why did I need a donut or why did I need yes. a bite of a donut? Uh, you know, if you, if you want to change where you are in your life, obviously you're giving, you're, you're responding to answers that are, that are coming out, uh, out of the brain into the mind and to change answers, you have to be relaxed enough for questions to form because it, you know, when you reach that point of choice, you know, if it's just the same old answer, it's going to be the same old choice. So getting the heart rate under control through breath control is an amazing tool 
to reach inside yourself deeper and look for questions because life might not be the quality of your answer. It might be the quality of your inquiry or question. Mm -hmm. What do you want to know? And, you know, just kind of coming full circle to the concept of becoming present and mindful is that when you're constantly inundated with the noise and uh, demands of the external world, it's really difficult to ask those questions or take the time to introspect and see what's going on inside with yourself. And then that can really be when you wake up with your mind buzzing in the middle of the night because you didn't dedicate enough time during the day to uh, figuring out things that are on your mind or just figuring out how you could have handled something better or uh, coming to peace with it or whatever it is. And uh, that type of stuff is really tricky because if you're doing that all the way up until bedtime and then you expect to just lay down and fall asleep, you know, that's, <laughs> that's why I'll, you know, and I, I again, I'm not, uh, making fun of anyone who does this, but a lot of people need to fall asleep with the TV on, for example, especially in the U.S. here uh, for our U.S. listeners. That's kind of a common thing. And uh, I understand that um, if your brain is going all the way up until bedtime, it's hard to shut it off. And having that may be a nice Band-Aid to help you fall asleep. But Ultimately, it's just kind of covering up uh, a deeper issue, I think, and in my experience, um, and that it may be better over time to try to dedicate a little bit of time to being aware of yourself and dealing with some of those thoughts throughout the day and maybe uh, accessing your breath and doing things physiologically to bring your body in line as well uh, to calm down for the night. Um, and use energy efficiently throughout the day. And then you'll hopefully get better sleep overall um, because TV is also just stimulation as well when we're trying to rest. So, um, yeah. Great awareness. It's a great awareness, man. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Ed, you know, before, before we hit record, we were kind of joking that tomorrow is a holiday so we could – have this interview go for maybe 24 hours or so. And um, it seems like that we probably could do that. But I, I think this we're coming to a good kind of wrapping point to allow people to wrap their minds around all of what we've been talking about and maybe implement a few techniques and just becoming aware of their breath, maybe using the guided breathing function in Elite HRV app. Uh, but do you have any closing thoughts before we kind of tell people like where to find you and all that? Well, I think the greatest thing about us all is, you know, we have the ability to love our life. We have the ability to love ourselves beyond anything that could ever be described to us by the head. It's, it's coming from the heart. And I, I really think that we all need to see our past as a plus. And, you know, we're all doing the best we can uh, every moment of our life or we would do better. So, you know, when we can just see that, you know, the system that we're in is, is not really a perfect system in the moment, but there is always room for improvement. And we always want to keep learning and be in that creative mode. And, you know, you notice your triggers maybe earlier on in the process uh, that come up from the gut. So you can keep the emotions down in the belly before they come up and hijack, uh, you know, your great ideas uh, between your ears. Be fully aware of how courageous you are everything you've overcome to get to where you are in your life right now. And you know that if you can make today just a little bit better, you're guaranteed a great day tomorrow. And just try to set in motion modalities that allow you to love your life. Mm, that's huge. And so uh, I know you have a book, Ed, and, and a website. So maybe share with folks where they can find you. Yeah, I have a book called uh, Life with Breath. And uh, it has a 30-day structured breathing program in there that's, that's open to everyone. And I think everyone will get something out of the 30-day program, either athletically or corporately or from uh, relationships that we're involved in. Uh, there's a lot of really good science in the book about heart rate variability and other autonomic functions, psychological, digestive functions uh, that can really help us live a vibrant life all the way to the end of the road. And there's also a little bit about my story, about how I segued into this opportunity to kind of blend the Eastern and Western techniques 
uh, in regard to making uh, my journey the best it possibly can be and then hopefully making yours a little bit better. You can get me at uh, gobegreat.com. It's a wonderful website that has a ton of science and research. It also has hundreds of blogs uh, in regard to uh, just motivating uh, folks to see the best in themselves where in the past they might not have. Uh, I also have an Ed TV channel where I have about uh, 600 uh, television shows inside the channel for a, a small monthly fee, which are designed for personal growth, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, so that we can get out of our own way and smile as much as we possibly can at the end of the line. Awesome. Well, Ed, hey, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your time with us, um, sharing those precious breaths with us, and um, you know, shedding light on some of these situations where a lot of us have more control over the situation than we realize. And if not the external situation, we definitely have more control over how we respond to it and what's going on internally than we often realize. So very much appreciate this. Um, uh, I'd be happy to share this with everyone and look forward to communicating again with you soon. Thank you so much, Jason. It was great to be with you. You're a wonderful interviewer, and I'm really proud of all the work you're doing uh, in regard to helping people physically, mentally, uh, on every level to just really, you know, enjoy these cycles of life. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Ed. Thanks, and we'll we'll call it a wrap there. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.